Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Returning patients to work is not always a clear-cut trajectory. There are multiple stakeholders invested in the patient's care beyond your typical medical providers, and oftentimes there are outside pressures as well as patient and occupational-specific contributors that require a keen eye from the treating therapist. That's why we reached out to Dr. D. Daly to walk us through how to provide optimal care when tasked with returning our patients to work. Dr. D. Daly is part of the guideline development group that authored the Work Participation CPG titled Clinical Guidance to Optimize Work Participation After Injury or illness, the role of physical therapists. She has served as vice president and education chair of the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy Occupational Health SIG and as director of clinical practice for work well prevention and care. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Dr. D. Daly, thank you so much for coming on JOSPT Insights. We're really looking forward to it. Let's dive right into workers' compensation. Thanks. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to to geek out a little bit on work rehab CPG. This includes various injuries, various job demands. It's more of a participation and function CPG as opposed to a impairment-based CPG. So it's a little bit unique. What are the biggest takeaways from the CPG so that we can provide the best care to these patients getting back to work? What is the ideal time for a physical therapist to see these patients? You know, the, uh, the CPG covers so many different areas that it really is going to vary about the best time. That being said, the research shows the earlier the care is initiated, the better. So outcomes tend to be worse when an initial consultation for work-related injuries goes beyond seven days. Can you give us a brief rundown of who else is involved in the care of these patients? Who is identifying the patient's goals in terms of what is requ- what is required for their occupation and return to work status? Because this is a little bit tricky. Usually we listen to the patient directly as far as, you know, what are their goals for rehab? And so here, my understanding is that we're kind of mixing, there are patient-specific goals, but also specific occupational demands. Those demands really create when we look at them comparatively to the person's capabilities, a gap. And so part of the goal setting is really looking at the gaps that people may have in performing work, and as well as some of the barriers and facilitators that are going to help us create goals to get that person back to work with the least amount of life interruption. So there's a classic dynamic, if you will, between the medical team being physicians or nurse practitioners and and case managers and nurses. But we also are working with employer representatives, safety managers and supervisors, because they also know the work. Now, that being said, we really do want to create a therapeutic alliance with the client. Uh, There's some decent research coming out that shows that worker goals, worker fears, worker anxieties, those all are going to be pivotal. So it really does become a team effort. Probably an example of that would be something like tire builders. There's a number of tire builders that I've, I've seen in my life that had back pain. And they would say, okay, we're doing light duty, but we're feeling worse. And when we talk with them, 
we find out that their light duty is sitting on a milk crate bent over painting a guardrail at 12 to 18 inches off the ground. It's it's a really simple thing for us to hear that story and know where the where the pivot point is to make a real difference. In that sense, we're discussing work demands with, uh, is it their boss? Is it their case manager? How are we finding out about their light, their light duty milk crate painting <laughs> so that we can maybe step in and maybe make some suggestions there? Or is that coming from the patient? You know, sometimes it comes from all of the above or one of the above. So I, in, a, in a perfect world, we would get job information when we see the client. Now, it, 10 years ago, that was very rare, but it's becoming more common. So we actually work from a combination a lot of times of job information provided by the employer and or patient interview. So we talk with folks and ask not just what are the job demands and what types of work do you do, but also what are the policies, the workplace policies that are going to influence care? Really transitional return to work and keeping people at work, keeping them engaged and socially connected to their coworkers is helpful. So we need to understand if there is a transitional duty policy at the workplace, or if it's a, we don't want somebody back to work until they're 100%, which really puts us in a different realm. That makes me think of like a sports analogy. So we know we want to have that injured athlete stay a part of the team that's good for their mental health and allowing them to participate in more and more aspects of their sport in a safe way is ideal for their progression back to sport. So it makes sense that it's the same for work. Absolutely. We, we look at the thought that people don't have to be 100% to go back to playing sport, but we need to protect the areas that are healing and optimize what we can of their performance along the way. Who we're communicating with really depends on the situation, case manager, boss, etc. So related to that, how are we taking into consideration the goals that are specific to the patient's life outside of work? Maybe we aren't, maybe like they aren't related to the work demands. You're saying that research is showing that rehab clinicians really need to be bringing that up and bring that up still matters to the patient. Sure. As we talk to the clients, we get a dimension of where our leverage points are going to be for optimizing care. So I've had people come into the clinic and say, I don't care about going back to work. All I care about is getting my baby in and out of the crib without pain. Okay, well, let's work on that. And we work on that. We might take a bolster and mimic the crib. And and then we might put strap weights around the bolster and say it's a heavier child now. And then at the end of the at the at the end of the visit, when the person says, you've heard me, I kind of give them the lifting is lifting speech, you know, lifting at work or lifting at, at your baby. It's all the same principles and it has to be meaningful to them. So by showing that we hear them, but there's also that bigger purpose of their whole life, um, that's one of the ways that we can make a difference. Um, but there's also simple anxieties where folks may not have the skills to know how to communicate their needs to the workplace or their fears or anxieties. And so sometimes we do role-playing with people. We work on the cognitive piece of what are you feeling and, and are you clamming up about that or what language can you use? Like my supervisor doesn't respect my restrictions. Okay, well then why don't you carry some in your pocket, carry a copy, and if somebody asks you to do something is to say, I wish I could, but my restrictions right now aren't at that level. So you take the, the desirability out of it and we start to get a little bit more of here are my boundaries and I'll do anything within those boundaries and helping people learn those communication skills. 
So that's the subjective part, just chatting about all the requirements to get back to work. What are, what about some performance measures? Uh, the classic functional capacity evaluation, there was quite a bit of data on, on that in the research that came up in the clinical practice guideline. And really, there's no one single best standard, but there certainly are a number of valid and reliable performance tests that people can get training and get them under their belts. One of the things that's happening over time is we're seeing this evolution from this maybe full battery of tests to short form tests or to interviews that, that kind of get at some of the heart of the functional performance tests based on life activities. They're not necessarily shorter tests, but they tend to mirror either the typical FCE or the short FCE as emerging trends. The results of those tend to mirror a full-length FCE. So instead of doing one summative test at the end of care, when you should already know what your client can do, we're actually seeing an evolution to really small bouts of testing in meaningful work-related areas throughout care so that we can do goal setting, so we can determine the appropriate dosage to challenge our clients and, and things along that, that nature. Can you break down maybe just what a, a FCE for a patient with low back pain might look like? The typical functional capacity evaluation has different groups of activities. Some may be related to material handling. So there might be a lifting test or a couple of lifting tests with different directionalities, maybe above the waist or below the waist, above the shoulders, that type of thing. Pushing and pulling. And then there are often positional tasks or subtests, such as forward bending or crouching or crawling, ladder climbing, things like that, which get more towards ambulation. So any combination of those activities may be appropriate for your client. And I use a, a baking analogy often. They're the ingredients of the, of the tasks that the person is performing. And, and it helps people kind of relate to uh, what we're looking at. We can also use job-specific or face-valid testing, which is oftentimes taking the, the parameters of the job demands, if you know, know them, and then replicating them, which also becomes the preface, if you would, for work simulation activities. So we start taking various dimensions of heights and loads and um, depths of activities, and we start mimicking them as part of testing and or clinical care. This is great. I can see how these are not just tool to use with patients returning to work, but also just a patient trying to get back to life or, you know, the typical patient that you see in, in your, your, your regular sports and orthopedic setting. It kind of breaks things down into component parts and not only helps you assess what the patient is capable of doing, but also gives you insight into what they're struggling with or what they're not ready for yet, which can then direct your trajectory of care. Everyone involved in the patient's care wants to know, when do you think they're going to be ready to come back? And so in the CPG, you note clearly that PTs should screen for risk factors associated with delayed return to work status. And we should use the patient interview as well as validated tools to do this. There are a ton of factors to consider here. What validated tools do you recommend physical therapists use to try to really capture a lot of these aspects beyond just the patient interview? Yeah, and it's interesting. Even the patient interview, there's some early or kind of baseline data that says that's the tool that most people use. So I wouldn't certainly wouldn't ignore that. And even from a biopsychosocial perspective, there is the ABCDEFW. So your attitudes, beliefs, um, and, and things that go all the way through kind of economics and family and work and things like that. 
So, but some of the tools that we, we looked at and came up pretty well in the literature were things like the workability index or the Arebro musculoskeletal pain questionnaire. The disability of arm, shoulder, and hand has a work dimension that is also valuable. The modified spinal function sort, which is uh, pictorial, and it asks people's perceptions and their self-efficacy regarding different tasks, and then asks them to kind of score the level of difficulty. That's another one that came up fairly well. We also have some of the more traditional ones like back disability risk questionnaire, and even the pain disability questionnaire in the Roland Morris. The key to some of these is really that they have a responsiveness to the work component and the work outcomes, return to work outcomes, not just perceptions, but actually kind of those return to, to work dimensions. We know that psychologically informed PT is, is, is very important. We know it can be effective when used correctly. My understanding is also that it, it needs to be used selectively and that if we have a patient who actually doesn't have fear avoidance beliefs or anxiety related to kinesiophobia, for instance, and we just start going into a psychologically informed or we just go into psychologically informed techniques used to 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 decrease kinesiophobia, we can actually end up increasing their fear avoidance. This is why I really, really liked in the main recommendation for psychologically informed PT, you stated physical therapists should incorporate psychologically informed practice when psychosocial barriers are identified. And so assuming that we have identified these barriers, what does psychologically informed practice look like? You know, that's a great question. There is a large body of work on preventing needless work disability. And part of that is not medicalizing the care. There are, there are really kind of real staunch supporters of that that say maybe we shouldn't even be doing giving a diagnosis. I think that diagnosis is is pivotal for us, but a client may not need to do that. And speaking in terms of impairment can really be helpful. When we do in, include psychologically informed practice, the pain neuroscience principles and pain education principles are, are key, right? And I alluded to this a little bit earlier that that workers sometimes even basic things like problem solving, coping techniques, taking a pause and, and relaxing can be very helpful to them to help them sort through that kind of cognitive behavioral processing that goes on that, that you kind of think about with the trigger that leads to a physiologic or a cognitive thing. The person has, has this thought and then it impacts their emotions and behaviors. And so unpacking some of that and asking them to actually become part of the problem solving and recognize when some of their strategies may not be helping them and then rethinking the strategies that they're using is certainly one of the ways that we want to go forward. There's also quite a bit of literature, and, and I'm going to use the terminology from one of the studies. They looked at function-centered therapy versus pain-centered therapy. And so that the results were certainly uh, more comprehensive when we looked at function-centered therapy. So there are, are strategies that we can use as we are working with individuals and even regarding maybe the interventions. If we're seeing somebody for an hour or an hour and a half as they're getting ready to go back to work, instead of us setting out and laying out a pattern of activities, maybe we would say how to the person, how do we look at these activities to get them to replicate your work as much as possible and what order should they be done in? And when they run into a problem, we start to work through the process with them to build that resilience, to be able to kind of bounce back from a stress point and be more prepared for the future. Because we know that 
people who have work injuries will have recurrence. And so preparing them for that recurrence and teaching them that work isn't bad for them. The, the literature on work is that work is actually kind of people who work have, have less morbidity, less mortality, but it's socially acceptable to grumble about your work. And somehow we tend to confuse that in how we approach things. So getting people back to that philosophy of being prepared for the next time it might happen and giving them a self toolbox. There's some data that shows that that's actually pretty powerful stuff, especially at the first time of injury. So if it, if somebody's having recurrent injuries, it might be a little tougher to do. There's certainly some formal programs. One of the programs that came out of working with individuals that were struggling with work was PGAP. So the progressive goal attainment program where you work with the client on their goals and helping them find their way through that program. It's something that can be done in connection with, with therapy. And then there are actually therapists out there that are picking up parts of acceptance and commitment therapy. There are books out there like The Happiness Trap that, again, don't we all think it's a perfect world and everybody else is having a better time than we are? And so when you get injured and it's horrible, you know, how do we help folks to say, what is happiness to you? And, and are you falling into this trap of, of, of expecting what everybody else you see on television or all the happiness that you see on Twitter or things like that? So therapists are starting to add some of that dialogue into their care. And again, the dosing is important, just like anything else. As you noted, too much of it can start becoming medicalized. So you want just the right touch. You know, you see the look on the patient's face if, you know, on the first day of the evaluation, you start going into a bunch of too much education. Right. And so it, it seems to be something that is uh, best dosed out consistently a little bit at a time as the patient is is willing and accepting to 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 take it in. This is actually a common theme that keeps coming up on this podcast that no matter the body part injury or like setting that we work in, we need to be treating the whole patient. Well, and the, the other thing that I think it's a good time to point out is that this is a companion CPG. It's really the first activities and participation-based CPG. Most of the others, if we consider the realm of ICF, most of the other CPGs are body function and structure-based. So this is really meant to accompany the CPGs uh, that look at arthritis and or stroke and or other types of problems and structure and function things. Dr. D. Daly, thank you so much for that wonderful segue. I was just about to segue into more interventions. So this CPG is unique in that it addresses more like participation and function. We've talked about that. So the interventions that we choose are not outlined are not outlined in the CPG because it depends so much on what their injury is. So we don't have to get into that. But we did talk earlier about factors that contribute to a delayed return to work. So I'm curious, is there a difference in the interventions we would choose for people who have or don't have risk factors for delayed return to work? We did identify what, what we kind of term two pathways. One is a relative low risk and the other is a relatively high risk pathway. So for the low risk pathway, Communicating with stakeholders when the job demands are exceeding the worker's ability is, is really one of the first steps. We may want to offer ergonomics if there's a gap between the client's performance when they enter for, for evaluation or examination and, and their job demands so that on a temporary basis, we can try to help bridge that gap and then transition them uh, through clinical intervention. So in this case, we really want to engage the worker in goal setting and use a behavioral approach 
with work-focused interventions. We want to make sure we're dosing the person in a challenging enough manner. There was a, quite a bit of data that said, don't look at light exercise in isolation. We should be challenging folks. And then there was recommendations for graded return to work. So actually structuring a program where the workplace is part of that return. But again, based on if the person's out of work for a short period of time, it isn't it isn't the end of the world. We can certainly bridge that gap with therapeutic interventions in the clinic. When you compare that to the high-risk pathway, we really want to start those psychologically informed practices and consult with the employer. This high-risk doesn't mean that it's necessarily chronic. It could be that somebody has a significant fear avoidance or that they have had a traumatic uh, situation that's happened. And maybe they're not going to return to the same uh, to the same job or to the same line, if you would, but they may return in a, in a lighter capacity, again, just so that, that they don't become divorced from work. I don't have a better word right now, but that's, that's kind of what we want to do. We want to make sure that we are consistently working overtly on return to work and getting people engaged with clinic-based uh, work simulation. So we... It, it, it says, let's start overtly connecting work and performance as well as the other dimensions that we look at. That doesn't mean we're going to ignore their individual roles as a, as a family member or a partner or other things. But we, we really want to make sure that there's an overt work component there as well as a strong behavioral approach that does go in that function-centered direction. Ah, yes. And the CPG provides a wonderful flowchart in the back for how to move forward in patients and how to take the delayed return to work, the psychologically informed practice into consideration. I just wanted to reinforce again that this dimensionality of work that uh, even if you think about how you introduce yourself to other people, oftentimes within that first one to two sentences, what you do for work is part of how we how we identify. And so uh, again, I don't. I hope that people don't think that work itself is a bad thing, and that that there's a positivity to getting people back to work. And I remember a client uh, saying to me, coming up to me and saying, "Thank you for helping me be go back to being the breadwinner in my family." And at first, I thought that's such a sitcom kind of line that I never thought I would have heard that in real life. And yet, it, it, here was a, a regular guy just telling me as a regular therapist about this really important ability that he it was he could go back to this part of his life that work really is kind of a a neat part of our lives and worth looking at the worker role just like we would look at any other role of the clients that we see i love it dr daly thank you so much for joining us on jospt insights thanks for listening to this episode of jospt insights for more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.